And they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God set. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work from the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. All right. Well, last week uh, we talked about the fall itself and the temptation. Y'all remember we went through uh, kind of in detail the way that Satan strategized to draw the woman and the man away from God and to themselves and to him. And it was very successful. Uh, we also talked about how that same strategy is the strategy Satan is using Today, but uh, tonight we have a maybe more important topic. Uh, if, if last week we were talking about Satan's strategy for dealing with the fall and sin, tonight we're talking about God's strategy for dealing with it. 
That's a better topic, don't you think? Uh, it's one thing to know Satan's ways. It's a whole other thing to know God's ways. In fact, we ought to know Satan's ways for sure, not be tricked by them, but we got to know God's ways even that much more intimately and personally. And here in uh, the passage, God responds to the danger that sin causes in the world and in human life. I want you to think about this. Uh, after a disaster of any kind, what kinds of questions do you need to ask and answer? After any disaster, what are some of the questions you got to ask and you got to answer? You can answer. Yeah. Is because uh, everybody alive, right? That's number one. What else? How did it happen? Yep. What do we do now? How can we prevent it from happening again? These are great. How much damage? Yeah. What's it going to take to rebuild? How much? Uh, how much time? How much effort? All those questions. You have to ask every single time a disaster happens, right? Wouldn't you agree that asking the right questions and getting the answers to them is the most important thing you can do after a disaster? And we see uh, in, in God's response to the, the sin that Adam and Eve committed, that's exactly what God starts with. He starts with questions. Um, I love mystery shows. The detectives on the mystery shows always find out who done it, always. And the way they do it is by asking the right questions. I'm always very impressed at the questions they ask. For me, I would just bull into it and just say, hey, did you kill that guy? You know, I would just go straight for it. Did you do it? You did it, didn't you? Instead, they know how to, they know how to be subtle and ask the questions that will trap the person who is already prone to lying and already prone to hiding. And God knows that what sin does to us and what it did to Adam and Eve is it puts us automatically in a position of hiding, covering, trying to not tell the truth, trying to invent things to cover over the truth. And so God comes with these questions layer upon layer in order to show his three-step approach to sin. Okay? And if you look at your bulletin, you'll see a three-step approach. The first is God wants to get a confession. It's really important. We've got to talk about confession tonight. The second thing God wants to do is he wants to give judgment. God must judge sin. And uh, the good news is, in this passage, God always brings mercy with judgment. That's a beautiful thing. Then the last thing God has to do is he has to overcome sin by grace. Okay, so confession, judgment, and grace are the three things we want to talk about tonight. And tonight will be a little bit more interactive, I hope, uh, than it was last week. Uh, I'll try to give some more questions and allow for some more response. All right, so first of all, God comes asking questions in order to get the man to confess. What is the difference between confessing something and excusing something. Is there a difference? Yeah, where's the blame? It's, it's whether or not you're taking responsibility, you know, and if you're not taking responsibility, it's usually because you're making some excuse. Either you're passing the responsibility on to someone else or you're making an excuse like, well, I was tired or I, you know, he did this to me first, and therefore I had to do, you know, you're making some kind of reason that's supposed to give a rationale for why you did what you did. A confession is more of just a simple, I did it. 
What kinds of questions does God ask the man and then after that the woman in order to encourage a real confession from them? Where are you? That's where he starts, which is this is all this is the detective side of God, right? Where are you? He didn't come in and say, I know what you did. You know, I saw it. Of course he did, right? He knew it. He, he knew where Adam was. Let's get that out of the way. God wasn't asking because he lacked, you know, he wasn't pushing the Find Me app, you know, in his phone, trying to literally find where Adam was. He knew where he was. But instead he says, where are you? Why does he say that? He wanted Adam to know. He wanted Adam to have to say where he was at. Why did he need Adam to say where he was at and realize for himself where he was at? Why did that matter? Yeah, so it sounds like you're, you're saying the question, where are you at, had more than just physical location in mind. Like, it's a deep question, like, where are you at in your life right now kind of thing. And I think you're, you're right, you know. I think that question is pregnant. Yes, God is saying, where are you at physically, so that he could locate himself. But notice what Adam's location is physically. Where is his location? Hiding. Hiding. And so to even answer the physical location question, Adam also has to bleed over into the how are you doing, where are you at in life question. Not so well, Lord, because I'm hiding, because I know that I'm naked now, and I was afraid of you. Uh, it says that Adam and Eve uh, heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool or the wind of the day. Which is, you know, kind of a mysterious phrase in the Bible. We don't read about this too much other places. But the assumption is they knew what it was like to hear the sound of God walking. Uh, probably because they had heard it already. And before when they heard it, it was something they welcomed. They were like, Yes! The sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Let's go walk with God. Let's go talk with God. Now they hear it and they hide. And so when God says, where are you? It is a loaded question. I can tell you one thing, God. I'm not where I was. Where I'm at is not where I used to be. It changed really quick. I went from greeting you the sound of who you are and, and the sound of your presence to ducking and covering because I did not want to be near you. Do you see what God is doing? He's asking leading questions in order to provoke a full owning up to the sin that Adam had committed. And yet, he doesn't get a full confession out of it. Or at least not a straight confession. You can't say that Adam didn't confess because there in verse 11, or not 11, 12, he says at the very end, very simply, I ate. That's a confession. But before he gets to saying, I ate, what does he say? You gave her to me, and she gave me the fruit. Not, okay, not fully my fault. At least he's saying, at least partially, I, I, I can go free here. It's not all my fault. After all, you are the one. I mean, he's kind of blaming God in a way. You're the one that gave this woman to me, and then this woman comes along with this fruit, and how am I supposed to tell her no? Right? Do you see how that works? Adam half confesses. And yet, it's beautiful to see because God is even willing in this case to accept the half confession as a confession. 
Because God turns around and deals with Adam and Eve tenderly, which we'll see in the next point. He doesn't just deal with them harshly. He deals with them with some tenderness, some grace. Even though Adam was only able to get out a weak, pitiful half-confession. Anybody in here comforted by that? Have you ever uttered to God a weak, pitiful half-confession of your sins? (laughs) I think if we could see all of our confessions and all of our repentance from God's perspective, we would conclude all of it has been weak, half-pitiful half-confessions. All of it. Proof, by the way, that God's plan with sin is not... Okay, you made a mess of yourself, fix your life, and then I'll come to you and save you, right? That's that's not God's response to sin in in human beings. Not at all. If if that were God's response, he would have cut Adam off right there. All right, you're dead. You brought me that terrible, pitiful confession. Really? You're going to blame me? You're, You're done. Instead, God encourages what is good there, while at the same time not so subtly rebuking what is wrong. Because even though God doesn't out and out say, you're kidding me, Adam. You're blaming me and the woman when you are the one that made the decision to eat. In a way, his silence communicates that. Because then God you know, makes kind of a show of it by turning to the woman and asking her a question. What's the question he asks the woman? What is this that you have done? That's an interesting way to ask it. Why do you think he asks it that way? What is this that you have done? To Adam, he says, where are you? To her, he says, what is this that you've done? Okay. Good. What else? How is it leading, Clark? What's it leading her to do? Yeah, yeah, that's right. He doesn't just say, did you eat the fruit? That could have been answered yes or no. Again, he wants her, just like he wanted him, to verbalize out loud what she did, which she turns around and does. Same thing as Adam. Uh, She says, I ate. Confession. But before she gets to the confession, what does she say? Devil made me do it. Devil made me do it. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Which was true, actually, by the way. And, and lots of people have pointed this out. That the sin of the man was different than the sin of the woman. Um, and, you know, Paul, I say some people pointed out. Paul points it out, which is a big deal because he was an apostle <laughs> and wrote most of the New Testament. He says the man sinned willfully. The woman sinned by deception. The woman was beguiled in, in this case. The man just out and out decided to sin, unbeguiled. And so his sin, in a way, was worse than hers, if we want to put it on the scales like that. But nevertheless, they both sin. They both have to be able to say it out loud. God acknowledges, yes, the serpent did deceive you, Eve, you know. God doesn't acknowledge to Adam, the woman made you do it, because that wasn't actually true. It was actually true that the serpent beguiled her and made her think it was the right thing to do, even though it wasn't the right thing to do. You see, these little subtle things, sometimes we miss them, but they're important. And Paul says it's important later 
when he's talking about the church, and we can get into that, but he, he just starts to describe God's design to restore men and women, men as men, women as women, and part of the way God restores us, restores us is by reversing the exact way in which women sinned and men sinned in the beginning for another time. You can read about it in Timothy. We'll skip over it, though. There's some controversial stuff in there as well. Both the man and the woman confess, both confess pitifully, and yet God comes and still acts with tenderness to both. Lesson for us, okay? Here's the lesson. We confess our sins not because we are out looking for God. We come to a place in our lives when we, to confess our sins after God has been looking for us. Y'all got that? Uh, Adam and Eve were where? Where are you? Hiding from God. Explicitly hiding from God. I don't want God around me. God came after them. Where are you? What is this you have done? God is out seeking, hunting even. Hunting the man and woman down. And it was that hunt from God that eventually led Adam and Eve to a place where they, even though they did it imperfectly, they said, I ate. I did it. And they kind of put themselves over into the hands of God. They throw themselves onto his mercy and judgment. And the same thing happens in our lives. Confession of sins is very, very important, and you can't live without it. Repentance from sin is very important, and you cannot live without it. But repentance and confession are not the way you earn God's salvation. <laughs> confession and repentance are actually the product of God's coming to you to save you. Do you see? Very important. I don't think I understood that very much in my life. Uh, I, th I think a lot of times I thought growing up, and even as an adult, I have to confess and repent fully in the right way with full precision in order for get me to get the forgiveness. And I made sort of God, you know, my feeling of God's forgiveness to depend on how well I think I had done in confession and repentance. God is more merciful than that. This does not excuse poor repentance and poor confession. Neither, you know, this passage is not meant to, to excuse their miscarriages of confession. But it is a comfort to sinners like us that God is there to seek us and to bring us in and show us mercy even when we aren't doing it perfectly because we're truthfully never doing it perfectly. Questions or thoughts on this? It's, it's, yes, ma'am. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. But uh, confession, what I'm saying is confession and repentance come in the order of salvation after God has first pursued us and cornered us, you know, like he does with them. God has given us conviction of sins, in other words, to say it plainly. God comes and convicts us of our sins and convinces us of our need to confess before we ever do, right? Which sort of proves the point that the confession and the repentance can itself be a way of buying off God, right? Which is sometimes how we treat it, I think, you know? It's not just Roman Catholics who treat it this way, by the way, right? 
you know, the, the, it's famous, you know, the Roman Catholic way of confessing and all that stuff is pretty famous. Most people know that system or at least parts of that system where you go and confess all of your sins to a priest. You know, he gives you steps to take in order to do penance or pay off, you know, the, some of the sins you've committed. Most of us in here would admit that's not the way to do it. And yet, even as Protestants, I think we can slip into a, you know, God's forgiveness is dependent on my perfect confession. Well, we're going to be waiting on forgiveness for a long time, if that's the case. That's not to say you don't have to confess to be forgiven. It's not to say you don't have to repent to be forgiven. You do. But it is to just assure you that you're not going to do it perfectly. Are you all as excited about this as I am? Because I I, I get excited about this um, because to me it highlights the, the, well, what we said this morning, the immeasurable riches of his grace, right? And it it encourages me to confess better and and to repent better. If I know God is that generous and loving, man, I want to run to him, which is the problem Adam and Eve had. They were running away from him because they didn't think he was going to be this generous, Right? They, they thought, what? In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's what they thought, which happened. But it happened, I think we'll all agree, in a far more merciful, restrained way than they would have imagined it would have happened. Because they ended up living, what, 800 more years or something like that, right? <laughs> you know? And even though they died spiritually, God continued to work in them so that they could have spiritual life. Um, we all know having ch- those of us who've had children, we know uh, we can get kids to confess. There, there, are, there are strategies that parents can use, but we also know there are different kinds of confessions that you might elicit from your children, and we kind of know the difference between a "Yes, I did it" just to try to get past the situation, and the "I did it." Sorry, mom. Sorry, dad. I'm really sorry. You know, there's a difference, right, between the, yes, I did it, get it over with, whatever punishment you have. And what Clint's saying is, when you understand uh, confession and repentance are not a bargaining chip, you're actually free to come with a better kind of confession to God rather than just a, yes, Lord, I did it. You you caught me. You know, save me out of hell. Uh, And sometimes we, we do tend to treat it that way. We depersonalize God, you know, and, and we make it more of a transaction. Makes sense? Yes, Jan. Uh, yes. Yes. Amen. They should not. They should not. They should not. We should be merciful as we have been shown mercy. Now, I, I started this off by saying there's a difference between confessing and excusing. And it's not, it's not any good for anybody to say that an excuse is a confession, because it's not, right? It's not a bad thing to want confession versus excuse from people who hurt you. It's not a bad thing to want to give that to God, because that's what God deserves. Uh, but it always is true that as we have been shown mercy, we should extend it. And uh, people who hurt you will not always bring the best apology. Right? Um, I don't believe we ought to hold them hostage until they do. I think if there's something of an apology or a confession in there, we ought to forgive them. That's the way God treated us. 
Now, if there's nothing of an apology in there, if it's just straight up denial or straight up, you know, that's a different story, right? Because obviously God does not forgive those who have no confession, Do you hear, right? If you have no repentance, God does not forgive you until you repent. But it's not as if God is grading us on a perfect scale. If pass or fail, if it's perfect, you pass. If it's imperfect, you fail. Right? Mm-hmm. I think I think it's very, yeah. So I think that's another probably another topic. You're like, um, yeah. Well, what do you do if someone doesn't do any kind of confession and they've hurt you? Um, I think it's better for you if you forgive them. Um, I do think there are occasions where God would allow us to sue, not 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 necessarily literally sue, but figuratively speaking, to keep suing them for a confession, right? Right, you want someone to admit that they've hurt you, and I think that's a good—that's a part of justice, to me. Um, but I do think even when you do that, even if you're going after someone and so to speak suing them to get a confession, saying, "Hey, you really hurt me. You really hurt me," you still ought to have a heart ready to forgive, right? I think that—that's my two cents on that. That's a more—that's a detailed question. That one, yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. You are. Yeah. And so even if you haven't had the opportunity to literally say, I forgive you, because that person hasn't admitted what they did, you still can let them let it go. I mean, you still can forgive them in your heart or be on the ready at any moment to say those words, I forgive you. Um, and I don't think it's a bad thing to just go ahead and say them, even if they haven't apologized, but... But I could think of situations where it would be needed to, to keep asking for a confession, you know. Say, you know, say infidelity in marriage or something like that. I mean, you could see how you've got, you got to have an admission in order for that thing to have any chance of getting healed, right? I think. And you're going to keep suing, maybe even literally, uh, until that person will admit it, you know. Yeah. Great questions. Confession. Beautiful thing. Greatest thing that we have the opportunity to do as Christians. Um, The Bible says we can confess our sins because he is faithful and just to forgive us. And uh, I I would argue Adam and Eve got a whole lot better at confessing than they were on this first day. Praise God. And we will too. But oftentimes our Christian life begins with something like this, doesn't it? A really weak start. And yet God just encourages it and keeps us growing and going along the way when he doesn't have to. All right, secondly, there's judgment. Um, But the judgment is mixed with mercy at every point. Uh, Did you notice how God questioned the man first who blamed the woman? Then God questioned the woman who blamed the serpent. And so then God started by cursing the serpent, telling the woman how he would deal with her sin, and then telling the man how he would deal with her. With his sin. Uh, God uses the word curse only for the serpent and the ground. He doesn't actually use the word curse for the man or the woman themselves. Uh, not to say that the Bible doesn't teach that humanity is under God's curse, they are, but in this case, I think God is acting not only in judgment, but in mercy and redemption. In other words, Adam and Eve were saved. Adam and Eve were Christians. 
they believed in the gospel message which God gives to them there in verse 15. Uh, Let's just point out a few things. We don't have time for all the details, but in general, God says, sin is going to cause three things in the world. Might want to write these down. These are good. I'm I'm going to ensure that sin causes three things. First of all, I'm going to, this is God speaking, I'm going to assure that it causes conflict between good and evil. Uh, That's when he says to the serpent, I'm going to create enmity between you and the woman and her offspring and yours. You're going to always be at war. And eventually the, the humans are going to win out, but it's going to be a long war. God says, because humans have sinned, there will never cease to be conflict between good and evil in this world. And God's going to make sure, I will put enmity, he said. God is the one that kind of starts that fight between good and evil. Is that a merciful thing too? That God picked that fight? And that God makes sure that there's never a time when good and evil aren't fighting on this planet? Is that a good thing as well as a painful thing? You've got to pick a side. And then, so God is picking a side and he's encouraging us to pick a side. I'm putting enmity. And by the way, humanity, I want you to be on the side of me and not the snake. So I'm putting enmity between you and your offspring and the snake and his, right? I'm drawing a line in humanity. Either you're with the snake or you're with me. Right. And he didn't just say, oh, snake won. I'm out. I'll go start another world. Snake, you can have this world. Uh, some people actually seem to think that's what happened, that Satan sort of took control in, in completely of the world, and that, that's just not, the Bible doesn't teach that, right? Satan is powerful, but Satan is God's Satan. He's on a leash, <laughs> and he has been from this moment. The second thing that sin will cause is pain. Pain, and, and specifically, this is what he says to the woman. In pain you will rear children conceive children and give birth to children, and in pain you will relate to your husband. Um, I will cause pain. Interesting, right? Um, now, there's mercy in this. What, where is, okay, let's do this. Where is the mercy? Find it. It's like, where's Waldo? Where is the mercy within that statement? You are going to have children still, right? Isn't that merciful? The human race goes on. Man and woman will continue to be married and continue to be given to one another in marriage. Just like I said in the beginning, be fruitful and multiply. The man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. It will be a great thing, but there will be pain. You will not have children in a painless way anymore. And the relationship between husbands and wives, men and women, will be fraught with difficulties. And all the people said, amen. Right? We see it every day. Uh, Your desire, it says, will be contrary to your husband or toward. I know that's kind of, if you look at the footnote, it can either mean against or toward, which is kind of opposite. I mean, you know, those two are opposite things. and, And obviously translators have to decide whether it says your desire will be for your husband or your desire will be against your husband. Um, I think the ESV probably has it better. Your desire will be against your husband, but your husband will rule over you. Um, By the way, the idea that men are to dominate women is not something that God designed in the beginning. It's something that came as a result of sin. Right? 
This doesn't mean that God didn't originally design men to have leadership. It, that different than women have it. But the whole domination thing and the whole abuse thing and the whole, you know, forcing powerfully over a person that may be in some ways weaker, physically, if not, you know, if not in any other way, at least physically, right? That is a result of sin. That's a pain. That, that is a grief that was caused by sin. But in some ways, in God's design, it, it serves as a check because the woman's the woman is no longer there to be the helpful, you know, helper. She's, you know, either contrary to or desirous of possessing or controlling the man. So they're both trying to control each other is, is kind of the sum of it. You're going to try to control him, but he's going to control you. And it's just going to be this frustrating business. But there's mercy, right? Where's the mercy? You will have children, you will still get married, and we learn as the Bible goes on, God is using families to advance his gracious purpose. If there are no families, if there are no marriages, if there are no children born, there are no disciples. There are no people to believe in God. There are no redempt there's no redemption. There's no Jesus. Right? So it's a brilliant thing. And the Bible is full of examples of men and women who, because they believed in Jesus, learned how to relate to their husbands and wives differently than this. But even when we, as we learn to relate to our husbands and wives differently than this, we're still going to struggle in this way because that is the way of fallen humanity. You see it? Just in the same way that it says you'll bear children in pain, that doesn't mean you should not get an epidural. Right? You got that? Uh, God has given to humanity many gifts through time to dull the effects of the pain of the fall. And whatever dulling mechanisms God may give you to dull the conflict between you and your spouse, take it, right? Do it. For goodness sake, do it, right? Uh, this is not saying like fatalism, you must have a miserable marriage and you must have miserable children. And, you know, it's just saying this is going to be the natural way it's going to go. But I'm going to let it go on, and I'm going to use it as the grounds for where I'm going to show mercy. And so, epidurals, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, marriage counseling, the gospel of Jesus, which can radically transform your heart to make you love your hu husband and your wife way better than you would naturally, all those kinds of things are very much in play. Third thing he says is there's going to be death. So not only is there going to be um, conflict, and not only pain, there's going to be death. That's what he says to the man. You're going to work the ground, but you know what? That's going to be frustrating too. Because I'm going to curse the ground. And the ground that you were supposed to cultivate is now not only going to bring forth apples and pears and bananas, it's going to bring forth thorns, thistles. You're going to have to sweat to eat. And in the end of your sweating, you're just going to become the dust that you've been raking your whole life. <laughs> Right? That's what he says. You're going to become the dust that you have raked and plowed and cursed because it didn't bring forth what you wanted it to bring forth. Death is going to frustrate human life. It's going to make it where none of us last forever. All of us are really just creatures of a moment. We're here a moment and we're gone the next in the grand scheme of things. And that's, that's immensely painful, isn't it? And frustrating about human life. You know, it causes lots of grief. Again, God has shown great mercy, and there are many things that God has given us to avoid some of the sting and pain of death. Medical advances, all kinds of things to help us live longer. Uh, 
one of the wonders, I think, of the modern world is the advances in farming that have made it to where thorns and thistles don't have so much of an upper hand right now. I mean, you know, there, there's a lot better farming going on right now than there ever has been. Therefore, public shelves are stocked full. Praise God. What a gift, you know. Uh, this is not saying, again, that there's going to be no mercy. This is just saying the natural way is going to be frustration. Anything above that is going to be mercy. And so all of this you kind of put together, and, and you can kind of piece together a picture of the world, a, a Christian biblical picture of the world. When you look at the world around you, we have to look through the lens of creation and the fall at the same time. Hey, guys. Welcome back. All right, y'all, y'all go sit down, and we'll wrap up in just a second. When you look at the world around you, you see many good things. The good things we see are either created by God good and therefore they're good, or they're merciful gifts that God has given us to ease the effects of the fall. But you also look at the world and you see a lot of terrible things, a lot of painful things that are a result of sin. It's very important that you don't deny one or the other or you don't confuse them. And next week we'll talk about that. So I'm going to put the stop right here at judgment. We're almost at the end of that point, and next week I'm going to talk about that and grace and uh, hopefully help to build out uh, in your mind more of this. What is the Christian view of the world now that it has fallen? How should we approach it? Okay?